uh, 1 Samuel 8, uh, starting at verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served Bathsheba. As his, uh, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that have re- they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be performers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your field and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkey he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. The Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Well, thanks, guys. Can I uh, reiterate just how good it was to sing outside? I think you missed, a lot of us missed that in the noise as we came back in, as uh, Nathan and Em kind of reflected on that. I was actually talking to somebody uh, on the way back into church, and they said it is the first time that they've sung together with a church as a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's exciting. This person uh, has recently become a Christian and uh, today was the first time they got to sing together with us. So just uh, a wonderful, wonderful joy. Now, I don't know if you have ever learnt a lesson the hard way. Who's done that before? Learned a lesson the hard way? Yeah, most of us have. Whenever I try and build something, I relearn the same lesson over and over again, the, the hard way. And that is this lesson, planning and preparation It costs a little bit of time at the beginning, but it saves you a truckload of time once you get started. And so, uh, you know, even the simple task of measure twice, cut once, I keep making that mistake over and over again. I don't know if you've ever tried tried to teach someone who insists on learning the lesson the hard way. I, I, I'm trying to teach one of my daughters to ride her surfboard, a foamy. She's actually a really good little surfer, but she insists, she's not big enough, she's only six, and she insists on doing it herself. Okay, so she's carrying this mighty big board out into the waves, and, 
and then tries to catch the waves herself and will not let me just kind of help her and push her onto some nice gentle waves. And so she doesn't improve, she doesn't get any better because she insists on learning it the hard way. Now, as we come to the Old Testament, it feels a little bit like, if you read through the whole of the Old Testament, actually, it feels a little bit like Israel just, they just want to learn this lesson the hard way. And the lesson they, 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 they want to learn the hard way is that obedience is key. And, and what they do is they refuse to listen to God and they reap the consequences again and again and again. And so just in that little uh, section of 1 Samuel we had read, uh, it kind of goes like this, doesn't it? It goes, Israel says, we want a king. And Samuel says to them, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. God will give you a king if you want, but let me tell you about all the reasons why you don't want a king and why this is actually a bad idea. The king God will give you will take, take, take. This won't make you happy or prosperous or go well for you in any way, shape or form. It's not going to fix all of your problems as a nation. It's actually a bad idea. And Israel go, we want a king. Now, why do they want a king so badly? What are are the arguments that the elders of Israel have for wanting a king? Well, the first one is, is that Samuel's old and his sons are not leadership material. So if you have a look there, in 1 Samuel 8 verse 5, you'll need your Bibles open today, as we're going to kind of flick our way all the way through 1 Samuel 8 to 15. Here's what he says. It says, you are old, it's a nice thing to say, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And that seems fairly reasonable, right? Seems like a fairly good reason for a new leadership structure. Samuel's old, his kings aren't leadership, his, his sons aren't leadership material. Now, before we go on, I just want us to pause there for a moment and just, if you remember, this is exactly the same story as Eli. Right? Samuel's kids have ended up like Eli's kids, Hophni and Phinehas. They're corrupt and immoral. Now, Eli... We can understand what took place with Hophni and Phinehas because Eli was a scoundrel, right? And so, like father, like son. But Samuel, well, he's pursuing God. He's living God's way. And yet his kids have not followed in his ways. Now, for me as dad, that is kind of vaguely terrifying, to be honest. So I want to encourage you to pray for your kids, friends, and pray for one another's kids. And help them to think through the decisions that they need to make for Jesus themselves. What we mustn't do as Christians is just let them assume Christianity because their mum and dad are Christian. We ought to be praying for them. But that's a whole other talk and it's not part of this talk. Uh, They want a new king because Samuel's old and his kids aren't fit for the job. The other reason they, they want, to, uh, want a king is because they want to be like the other nations. Now, why? Why do they want to be like the other nations? Well, they wanted somebody who would fight their battles for them. So have a look in verse 19 of chapter 8. They say, we want a king over us. 
then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Okay, so, so it seems like two fairly reasonable reasons, right? And the question is, is, that, is this actually a problem? Is there, any, is there any problem with their desire for a king? Because in the book of Judges, if you read the book, bef- uh, the book beforehand, in the book of Judges, what you see is there's this constant refrain all the way through the book of Judges. It says, in these days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And it seemed to be a problem for Israel. Israel didn't have a king and everyone just did whatever they wanted. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you see God actually forecasts the day when Israel will ask for a king. So verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, it says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint a king over you, a king the Lord your God chooses. So it seems even in the law, there's this precedence for this kind of request. So the problem is not so much that they want a king, but it's that they don't want God to be their king. And you see that in verse 7. Have a look there in verse 7. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to all the people, all that the people are, are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his right. So the, the problem is not that God is against monarchies, far from it. But, it, but in wanting a king to be like the nations, wanting a king to go out and fight their battles for them, they have actually rejected God as king. Now you get a few more details about this when you come over to chapter 12. So just flick over to chapter 12 for a moment in verse 7. This is where Samuel's standing, he's in addressing uh, the people of Israel. And it says, Now then, stand here because I am going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the, commanding, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served Baals and the Ashtaroths, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. So you have this pattern right here. God's blessing, Israel cry for help, God sends a rescuer. God's blessing, Israel cries for help, God sends a rescuer. But then something breaks the pattern. Okay, so have a look there in verse, verse 11. It says, but when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, 
We want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So, so Israel was under threat from Nahash and the Ammonites. They were actually kind of moving on in against the people of Israel. And instead of crying out to God, they demand a king. And so the problem for Israel was this. Under pressure, they forgot the Lord their God. Under pressure, they forgot that, that it's not their leaders who go before them and, and win their battles for them, but it's God. Now, surely they would have known that, right? Last week, what was their big mistake? Well, their big mistake was that they thought the ark, the ark among us, could be used as a tool to twist God's arm into winning battles for them, only to be crushed by the Philistines. This week, they think, a king, a king over us. That'll work instead of God. He will win our battles for us. And the idolatry is the same here. The idolatry is the same. Now let's pause for a moment and remember that we are like Israel. If you want to do that thing where you you look for yourself in the Old Testament, well the answer is not to look for yourself in the heroes of the Old Testament, but look at Israel. In a national sense, they have rejected God as their king. But under pressure, we forget God too, right? We don't need an Ammonite invasion to, for us to kind of slip into Israelite unbelief at all, do we? So often we can be taught, caught thinking, well, in this one, God can't provide. And we set about sorting out our own problems with our God in our life and we think, well, I just need to kind of readjust some things in my life and get things back on track, which may need to happen, that might need to happen, but often we do that without failing, uh, failing to humbly submit to the Lord. Even as a church, we could do this, right? We have this bold prayer of reaching the city for, for, new, for, for Jesus. But that prayer is actually no good unless we actually sit down and pray it and ask God humbly to save the city, to save individuals in our lives. And friends, if, if you're not yet a Christian, then this is actually the first thing you need to sort out. The big thing you need to ask yourself is, have you rejected God as king? And notice it's really subtle here for the the Israelites. They're, They're not crying out, God, we hate you, or anything like that. It's very subtle. We just want to be like the nations. And our rejection of God can can be as subtle as that. I just I just want to do things my way. I just I just want life to be a little bit like the people around me. Now my prayer is is that when we get to the back end of this talk, you'll actually you'll you'll want Jesus to be your king. But that's a long time away back end of this talk. (laughs) The interesting thing about this is that that even though Israel have rejected God as their king, God actually just gives them what they ask for. And that's that's what chapters 9 to 12 are all about. Okay, chapters 9 to 12, God gives them a king. And so we meet Saul, and Saul looks the part. Actually, he looks like the perfect king for Israel. So have a look in in chapter 9, verse 1, and we get introduced to Saul here. It says, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul. 
as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than everyone else. So this guy's Mr. Israel, right? He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. Does it remind you of anyone, you know? <laughs> it would kind of be like... It would kind of be like having Chris Hemsworth, right? Or, or Hugh Jackman as, as the Prime Minister of Australia. Imagine that if you had Wolverine instead of ScoMo. <laughs> and even though it was Israel's idolatry that kind of led them to want this king, God is the one who appoints Saul as king. And it begins with what seems like a fairly ordinary kind of day for Saul. Saul heads off with one of his servants to find his dad's lost donkeys and they end up searching for so long that they begin to think well we better go back or dad's going to stop worrying about the donkeys and and start worrying about us but the servant says well well let's let's go over to that city there because there's a man of God there and in that town we can go and we can ask him where the donkeys are whether the donkeys are safe and so that's what they do they go and see Samuel now this was just common day stuff for Saul. This is like going out to the supermarket for us. This, he's chasing donkeys, right? He's, he, he's in the land of Zuf. He just ha- happens to be there at the right time. The servant just happens to, to say to, to Saul, let's, let's go into that town and meet the man of God. And, and Samuel just happens to be there. It's all very everyday, mundane kind of stuff. But behind all of it, God is pushing Saul forward on his path to kingship. Seems so casual, so mundane, so everyday life, so meh. And we would actually miss God's hand in this if it wasn't for a little intrusion in this passage that helps us to see exactly what's going on. So have a look in there in verse 15 of chapter 9. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him, ruler over my people, Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So it turns out it's not an accident at all. Saul was sent, designated, chosen by God. And this little secret that we're let in on here shouldn't surprise us at all. Because we know from other parts of the Bible, don't we, that that God is always at work in the everyday affairs of our life. So in Proverbs 16, it says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. That's what's going on here. Unlike here, though, in our lives, we're not kind of let in on the secret. Even here with Saul, Saul's about to be made the king of Israel and he thinks he's looking for a donkey. And we don't need to kind of pour over the details of our lives looking for signs or clear paths or clear callings from God, but just know that God determines our steps and trust him with our lives as we plan and live faithfully before him. Now, maybe that as you look back, you might see traces of the hand of God at work in your life as you look back on that time. But in the present, we, 
we, we just press on, trusting God. The reason we're letting on the secret here is because God is providentially bringing about his sovereign plan of salvation. Because despite Israel's rejection of God, God is actually using Saul for the salvation of Israel. And that's exactly what happens next. In chapter 10, Saul gets made king. The people all shout, long live the king! Saul explains what the king is to do, the rights and the duties of the king. He writes them all down and Israel has a human king for the very first time in history. And the very next thing that happens is fitting. The king of Israel delivers Israel from the hand of the enemies. So in chapter 11, Nahash the Ammonite, he eventually takes the city of Jabesh Gilead and Saul takes them into war. Have a look there in uh, chapter 11, verse 8. This is what it says. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 3,000 and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you'll be rescued. When the messengers went and reported to this, this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender you and, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So here he is, brilliant ploy, great strategy, remarkable victory, and off the back of his victory, they all rush back to Gilgal and they, they confirm that Saul really is the king. And so things are looking good for Saul. He's a mighty warrior, he's a great strategist, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. He's got all of the things that make a great king. But the author actually wants us to look beyond Saul. And he, and he almost undermines Saul in the text by continually reminding us that God is the one who is at work here. God is the one who gives Israel the king. And then God is actually the one who brings them the victory and saves them from the hands of the Ammonites. So have a look there in verse 6 of chapter 11. Saul receives this word about the, the Philistine invasion. This is what it says. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. So the Spirit of God is actually what makes all the difference here. It actually says the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. The Spirit of God rushes upon him and, 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 and it took this donkey chaser into turn him into a weapon for God's purposes. See, salvation didn't, be, didn't come because Israel now had a king. God had been rescuing his people for hundreds of years before there was even a king. Salvation came because Israel's king had God's spirit. This is kind of like the Old Testament's way of saying what Jesus says in the New Testament, where he says, without me... You can do nothing. So right at the very moment where they're celebrating the coming of the king, 
The author is undermining the king and wants us to see that the real hero is actually God. And it's not very long after this that Saul's true colours start shining through. And that's what chapters 13 to 15 are all about. But before we get there, I want us to see what the king should have been like. Okay, so come over to chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 14. As Samuel anointed Saul, this is what he said. He said, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hands will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. So there we see what the king is to be like, right? He's to follow the ways of the Lord. That's what he's to do, to follow the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 17, as I mentioned before, it outlines more fully the expectation of kingship. And the point of that whole section is, is that he's going to be a leader who, who, who is led by God and his word. And that's, that's what we want from all leaders, right? We don't need Chris Hemsworth or Wolverine. We need humble men and women who are willing to submit themselves to the word of God. That's what we need in the church. That's who we, that's who we want to be as, as leaders of Hunter Bible Church. We don't need showy or flashy or impressive people. We need people who sit under the Word of God and lead God's people from a place of humility. So if you're in leadership here at church or you, you just want to lead your family well or your spouse well, I need to tell you, God is not interested in the wisdom that you bring to the table. He just isn't. He's interested in how God's wisdom, his wisdom, has shaped you. He's interested in, in men and women who are humble enough to sit under God's word and put it into action. That is biblical leadership. But the king that Israel asked for is not that kind of king. And what we see is that God has actually given Israel over to the type of king that they deserve. In their rejection of God as king, God then gives them a king that reflects exactly who they are. And we see this uh, all throughout chapters 13 to 15, and this, this stark contrast is laid out for us in, in these chapters uh, between Jonathan, Saul's son, and Saul. And, and you see these positive pictures of Jonathan laid out and these foolish pictures of Saul laid out. And what we see is that Jonathan acts in a way that, that is deeply dependent on God. In one instance, he and his servant, they're planning to attack uh, a Philistine outpost, and this is what he says. He says, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So you see, you see in Jonathan, this man who has this clear conviction about God, for nothing can keep the Lord from saving, and, and, and this clear conviction he has produces this great expectation of God, where he says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And what we see is a man who is not trusting in his own daring schemes, but faith drives him forward. And as you read all these chapters 
about Saul being made king and his victories and losses. It is, it is so refreshing to hear those words of Jonathan's, those humble words where he says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. You just don't get that kind of humility with Saul. Saul uses his sacrifices and offerings and he uses them to try and manipulate God and give him the victories that he needs, but, but that's not faith. Faith doesn't tell God what to do. Faith doesn't dictate to God. Faith recognises our degree of ignorance before God and recognises that we just, we just don't know the mind of the Lord sometimes. But the crux of Saul's failure is he doesn't listen. He doesn't listen to God's word. He has Samuel by his side. Samuel is God's spokesperson for, the, for Saul. And he does not listen to Samuel. And we see this happen again and again and again. The first incident is in 1 Samuel 13. Okay, so the Philistines, they're getting ready to go, against, go to war against Israel. And what Israel does is they panic. They panic and they run for the hills. At this point, Saul sees all of his troops panic and run for the hills and he's not sure what to do. He's panicking, but he knows that he needs to wait for Samuel before he takes them into battle. He's specifically instructed. This is what he needs to do before he goes into battle. He needs to hear from God's prophet. So what happens? Well, have a look, chapter 13, verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down to me against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so you see this pattern of, of Saul failing to listen to God's prophet again and again and again. In chapter 15, it happens again. He's, he fails to listen to God's command. This time he's, he's commanded to completely wipe out the Amalekites. Now, if you read that chapter, there's actually lots of questions that, that are worth asking around the idea of holy war. Uh, we don't have time to dig into that today, uh, but there are actually some resources in your online outline that you can click on and you can look up a little video that Scott's done on that topic, on chapter 15. But the nuts and bolts of the chapter is that Saul has been given another clear command from Samuel and he fails to obey the, the word of God. And then, after that, to top it all off, after he gets his victory, he heads off to Carmel and he sets up a monument 
in his own honour. So do you see what's going on here in these chapters? God has given Israel a king who directly reflects their rejection of him. This is the king they deserve. Remember, Israel didn't just ask for another style of leadership. They were rejecting God as king. They were saying, well, God can't fix this problem. We need a human king. And Saul's the king they deserve. A king who directly reflects the heart of the nation. And the result is, God rejects Saul. Have a look there in verse 14 of chapter 13. God says to Saul, now your kingdom will not endure. That is the consequence of Saul's failure to be the king that he needed to be. And, and then this judgment of God is actually escalated again in chapter 15. After his repeated failure to listen to God, after he fails to wipe out the Amalekites totally. So, so just come with me quickly to, to chapter 15, verse 10, because this is really interesting. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And then the whole section finishes with these words in verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God regrets making Saul king. Now, there's lots of questions to ask there, aren't there? You know, about how a God who does not change his mind, how, how that God can actually regret something that he chose to take place, that he orchestrated in history to, to, to take place and to happen. There are loads and loads of great questions we could ask there. And in fact, in, in, chapter, in, in chapter 15, verse 29, it actually raises those questions for us. Have a look there in verse 29. It actually says, God does not change his mind. Verse 29, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And then, just a couple of verses later, he changes his mind. Now, what do we do with this? Well, we want to argue it away, don't we? Surely, surely this is a contradiction, right? We want to kind of hide from this awkwardness in the Bible. But I think the, what we need to do is actually do exactly what the author does. We let these two ideas just sit side by side one another. It feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe it even feels a little bit like a, a cop-out. Surely there's a way that we can theologize these things and make them kind of sit nicely together. But the fact is, we actually need both to be true if God is a God worthy of our praise. So just think for a moment, what if God did not regret that he had made Saul king? Well, we have a God who is indifferent. A God who is cold, mechanical, doesn't really care about his people. A God who is not concerned for his own glory. And that's not the type of God we want. We don't want a God who is cold and indifferent. But what if God was like humans and changed his mind all the time? Well, he'd be fickle and unpredictable, wouldn't he? 
We, we would never know where we stood with God. We would never know whether he listens to our prayers or not or whether uh, we could trust the firm promises that he makes to us in the Bible. But God is both. Consistent and sorrowful. He does not change his mind and he regrets that he made Saul king over Israel. Friends, we have a God who is neither fickle nor unfeeling. And even though it does our head in to put those two ideas together, that's exactly what the author does. That's what we need to do. And it ought to actually move us to praise him. Because if God was not like this, I don't think there would actually be any room for hope. But in these passages, chapters 13 to 15, in the midst of this judgment, God actually brings hope. As God's judgment is laid out, we see this little glimmer of hope. Go back to chapter 13 for me for a moment. This is as he's laying things out for Saul. Verse 14, chapter 13, verse 14. It says, Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. And so, and so right at the moment where the dynasty is being stripped from the hands of Saul, God is at work to give Israel a king that they don't deserve. A king who does not reflect Israel's heart, but a king who reflects God's heart. Now we're going to meet that king next week in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, so I don't want to kind of ruin the surprise there. But here's the thing. This promise in 1 Samuel 13 is not, it's not just fulfilled next week. In fact, this promise is only partially fulfilled in next week's passage. The ultimate fulfillment of this little promise here is Jesus. And he's the king we don't deserve. The king who does not reflect our hearts, but the king who reflects God's heart. A king who listens to his father in heaven and lives under the word of God. This is what Hebrews says about Jesus. I love this passage. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. That is the king we need. He's not the king we deserve, but just like Israel, our hearts, right, apart from the grace of God, are actually far from him. And we need a perfect king. We need a king who models what it looks like to listen to every word that comes from the mouth of God and obey it. And that is King Jesus. And he is obedient even to the point of death. A far cry from Saul, yeah? What a wonderful king we have in Jesus, friends. A king who is after God's own heart. But we actually need more than a model. He's a wonderful model, but we need more than a model. We need someone who is going to not only show us obedience, but be obedient for us. We need a king 
who will step in on our behalf and say, even though they were not perfect, I am. And I have died and I've paid the penalty for their sin. A king who doesn't set up a monument to himself, but a king who is perfect even to the point of death. And in his death, Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who follow him. Friends, Jesus is the king we don't deserve. Why don't I give thanks for that? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, through his death and resurrection, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Father, help us to know that he is the king we need. Not the king we deserve, but the king we need. And we pray that we would be ever thankful for him. Amen.